Hello and welcome to the Landmark Theatre's Q&A podcast. Today we'll hear a self-moderated Q&A with director Matt Tiernauer about his new documentary, Where's My Roy Cohn, recorded at the Landmark in Los Angeles. Ladies and gentlemen, director Matt Tiernauer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, well, now, I'm a bit blinded by the light, so when you raise your hand in the back especially, wave madly, and I will be able to see you. And I will repeat the question that you asked because uh, there's only one mic tonight. So, uh, without ado, a further ado, uh, who wants to go first? Yes, you here. So the question is about uh, a previous film of mine, Studio 54, and the relationship in subject matter and genre, which is uh, focusing on a certain type of New York uh, of a period. Uh, Roy Cohn and Studio 54 overlap, as you see in this film. And where did the idea uh, come from? Uh, was I inspired by Cohn's presence in the studio movie? And indeed, I was. So I was making uh, Studio 54 during the election year of 2016. Cohn is in all of that archival of that period because he's the lawyer for Studio 54. In fact, he did such a good job that the uh, owners of Studio 54 went to prison uh, for tax evasion for the, on the longest sentence ever given for that. Uh, and that really was the beginning of a slow slide into oblivion for Cohn and his career. He had reigned supreme up until that time. And I think the world began to shift in the late 70s, uh, post-Watergate, things became more legitimate uh, in government until the present moment. Uh, but that was a good government period, and people who were criminal actors like Cohn really were having a, a bad moment at that time. In any event, I uh, thought this would be a great subject for a movie, Roy Cohn. But then I put it out of my head thinking, well, Hillary Clinton's definitely going to win, and the real reason for doing Roy Cohn is the relationship with Trump, and that would be a very good thing to explore. Uh, well, needless to say, on a Tuesday in early November, things went very differently, and I wrote the treatment for this film the next day, and uh, it came out. It was in Sundance earlier this year, and now it's come out in another momentous week in American history. Uh, yes. That's intentional. The, so the uh, comment is about um, the obliqueness of the film. Uh, Trump enters into the picture, as you just saw in the early 70s, when the, the two heroes meet cute uh, <laughs> at Le Club, at a disco, appropriately. Um, and uh, I didn't want 93 minutes of uh, going back and forth between Joseph McCarthy and Donald Trump and making direct comparisons. So the way I like to put films together is very purposefully not on the nose, hoping that uh, somewhere in between the lines an audience can put it together for themselves. It seemed to me making this that the, the soul of the, uh, of the project was to show that uh, people who act in their own interest with total disregard for anyone else are uh, bad actors. And that when that rises to a level where it starts to affect other people's lives to great magnitudes, that is a huge tragedy. And the emergence of Trump and his mentoring by Cohn, even before Trump took office, because this movie was already in production in that period, seemed to me the signal of that. And uh, that's the premise of the film, if you, if you didn't get it. And uh, it's not hitting you over the head with it, which I think is a more elegant way to do it. 
okay, we'll go in the back and then wave crazy red, way back red, yes. <laughs> Good questions. So has there been any pushback from the Trump administration? Was the Stone interview before the indictment or the gag order, more to the point of Roger Stone? He's currently under a gag order. Um, <clears throat> Uh, no, I think the Trump administration has been busy this week, uh, and, but I'm waiting. Um, I'm waiting. Uh, they haven't said anything yet, even on the Twitter. Uh, but actually, um, Ann Coulter attacked the movie on Twitter, which I thought was a sign of great success. Uh, so, um, Stone um, was not indicted. It was very early. Uh, it was the first interview we did, more or less, because I wanted to kind of like get him over with. And um, I thought he actually did a great performance, I hate to say it. Uh, and Right, well, Stone and Cone. Both uh, dirty trickster people. Uh, Stone was a protege of uh, Cone's, as well as Trump. Not an attorney, just a kind of low life, um, who's not an attorney. Um, yes. Uh, Okay, wave, crazy. I'll go do another one way in the back because it's hard to see, yeah. yeah people in the film? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the question is, witnesses who speak in the film, do those people get paid? Absolutely not, never, ever, 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 would not ever allow it. Uh, journalistically, it's no-go. Uh, there are projects where people are paid, um, and those projects, for the most part, are never worth seeing. Uh, Journalists, this is a it's not a work of journalism in a sense because it's a film, and journalism is a little different than films in my opinion because unless it's editorial, you don't have a point of view. A filmmaker, I believe, should have a point of view. However, uh, in journalism, one never pays their sources. Is that a follow-up, I see? Yeah. Yeah, so the good question. Um, was it penance or expiation, I think, is another good way of putting it, to speak about Roy Cohn. In terms of the family members, there are three cousins in the film. Uh, I felt as if they were waiting by the telephone for 45 years for it to ring and someone to say, will you denounce your cousin on film for me? <laughs> uh, Anne Royfe, the writer who's in the film and is a cousin of Roy Cohn's, I thought was so brilliant and at the end talks about um, the common good and how people, uh, can emerge as evil when they are so intent on uh, <coughs> um, destroying the common good for their own uh, means. And she really nails her cousin there. Um, okay, now, yes. Uh, well, I never met her. Uh, the, you hear a kind of portrait of her from the cousins. Uh, Anne Royfe, a cousin, refers to her, and her source is her own mother, who says that Dora uh, was the ugliest girl in the Bronx. Uh, I wouldn't have put that in had it not been from the family, uh, I thought, because it was family lore and it was an attempt to explain this peculiar woman and the effect that she had on her son. So there was a lot of brewing resentment, self-hatred, and uh, channeling of those uh, feelings, or probably pending, pending up of those feelings, which created poison or made them poisonous, and then channeling them in strange directions. Uh, Cohn himself is a reactive person. He's a gay man who won't admit that he's gay, and he's a Jew who sends a Jewish woman who's not guilty of anything to the electric chair. And this he does before he's 25 years old. 
and then he's got a long rest of his life, even though it was cut short, to uh, see fit not to apologize or repent or correct those early mistakes. Uh, I can't tell you where someone like that comes from, but I tried to lace the movie with clues, and when people speak directly and in, indict uh, him and the family, I wanted to make sure that they were people who actually knew the family or were in the family. Um, yes. Do I think there's a cultural and political connection between Roy Cohn and Stephen Miller? Well, there's certainly a physical resemblance that's alarming. Uh, yeah, Stephen Miller is from Santa Monica, California. Talk about a reaction, right? Uh, the People's Republic of Santa Monica gives us this kind of strange Jewish crypto-Nazi um, and soulless uh, hating person. Uh, I don't know, a lot of people really have flagged that. And uh, I think that people have also asked me, um, you know, who's the new Roy Cohn? Trump asks, where's my Roy Cohn? What's the answer to that question? If you didn't know, the title comes from this question Trump asks. It's really more of a complaint when Jeff Sessions won't unrecuse himself. And I want to make a footnote here. It's so odd to be speaking of Jack Sessions as someone with ethics and <laughs> in this context, but this is how low we've come. And Trump then says, where's my Roy Cohn, wanting his attorney general to behave like not just a um, segregationist, but also a mafia attorney, which was beyond the, uh, the ken of Jeff Sessions to do. Uh, so is Bill Barr the new Roy Cohn? The New York Times asked me that in an article, and they said, is Bill Barr the new Roy Cohn? And my reply was, he wishes. Uh, but I think Trump is his own Roy Cohn. That would be my analysis. And I think where's my Roy Cohn could also be a sort of more metaphysical question. Uh, okay, and now back there. Uh, yes, yes. What do I see in our culture that makes us vulnerable to guys like this? I, well, Gore Vidal called this the United States of amnesia, one. I think that's a, a clue. Uh, I think that's a result of a grotesquely neglected and underfunded education system. Uh, and then I think three, uh, if I could editorialize, I think there's always been a fascist uh, undercurrent to this culture. I think that it hid itself after the civil rights movement when it was not cool to be overtly racist. And anti-Semitism and homophobia began to uh, get wrung out of at least polite society. Uh, feminism um, took place. And then I think the advent of a black president, which was probably the greatest thing to ever happen in this country, forced the probably 39 to 40% of the um, fascist, uh, racist uh, portion of the electorate farther up to the surface. I think Newt Gingrich egging it on with all of the Koch brother money that all of those people had uh, helped bring it to the surface, and I think now it's now. Uh, but that's why I made the movie, because I think if you see what uh, demagoguery can do and what clever people can do when they actually uh, know how to manipulate the media, um, you can understand how to short circuit it, ignore it, or educate other people who aren't as hip to it as you might be. Uh, I'll do another one. 
what feelings about Steve Bannon. Uh, yeah, he's part of the complex that I just uh, outlined. I think he's uh, he's a obviously a hideous bad actor who knows how to uh, use his money and leverage to get in with demagogues. I think the Koch brothers and those people are the really dangerous people and Citizens United uh, which is a result of a couple Republican presidents who appointed a couple really bad Supreme Court justices or that that's the really deadly combination in my opinion <clears throat> Now one up here and I'll, I'll get to everyone. Yes Yeah, that's a very good point and the first questioner who's I guess not here But he alluded to it and I didn't get to it. So thank you for mentioning it so the question is about people who in a way are colluders and uh, supporters of characters such as Cohn, Trump, and other um, bad actors. Uh, and this movie uh, is an indictment of those people. So what you see is New York society, which is to say the intersection of money, politics, influence, media, at mid-century, embracing someone who was discredited thoroughly in the Army McCarthy hearings, along with Joseph McCarthy. Joseph McCarthy was over after that. Eisenhower, Ed Murrow, the society really rose up and, and hung him by his toes, Mussolini style, uh, metaf metaphorically speaking. Cohen was discredited, took the train back to New York City, you literally see it in this film, and two days later was the toast of the town. And you had everyone from uh, the politicians of the era, to Barbara Walters, to uh, Sidney Zion, who was a very influential New York Times columnist, to William Sapphire, to William F. Buckley, to liberal people such as Jason Epstein, who is the editor-in-chief of Random House, who's in this movie. And when I was interviewing him, I, I like him and admire him, but he kept saying to me, you would have liked Roy. He was really a nice guy. <clears throat> What is it about that culture that allows that? I think there are a few explanations. Uh, one is I think New York loves a scoundrel. Uh, there was a mayor of New York, James J. Walker, who was a, openly a thief, but he was a great character. New York is a media cauldron. So the tabloid culture of New York, which is very exciting, uh, is a hothouse in which these characters thrive. Going back to let's just say, it goes back even further, but say someone like Walter Winchell, who was a demagogic superstar radio personality and columnist, very jingoistic, who was like a one-man Fox News at the time, down to um, the gossip columnists like Charlie Knickerbocker, and then uh, the George Sikorsky, sort of a forgotten name. That culture sustains people like this, and the moneyed interests of New York sustain that kind of scoundrel culture, and there is a nudging and a winking and a passing that goes on. Trump was a great beneficiary of that, though he was not taken seriously. You know something, Hitler wasn't taken seriously either, and if you read the books, uh, which there have been a spate of them now, about the rise of fascism, uh, but if you go back to the, the more contemporaneous books about Hitler, that type of society in Germany nudged, nudged, and winked, winked, and said, we'll take care of this fool. Uh, he won't get the best of us, and look what happened. Um, so we have time for a few more? Okay, great. Now we're going way in the back. <laughs> Hadn't thought about that, actually. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's, I would not discount it, actually. Um, yeah, I think that was a remarkable interview. It never aired. It was an NBC interview from 1978. And I kind of brought up this 
uh, Poppy Dog, Moon Dog, Crush that he has on David Shine in the 50s and the way he's talking about his protege there, who's not a known person at the time, really, in the late 70s. Trump was not really a high-profile person. There seems to have been a kind of psychosexual um, something going on. And uh, yeah, I, since, you know, Cohn could have forged that letter, but one of the famous uh, stories about the relationship between Trump and Cohn is that Trump gave Cohen cufflinks, and when Cohen took them to melt them down or something, the assayer told him that they were fake. Uh, <laughs> perfect, like scammer on scammer. Uh, uh, right in the middle. Yes, well, the questions about the hypocrisy of Cohen gay baiting or ruining lives of gay people in the army and the government back in his witch hunt period, and then speculating about other people um, in government who are hypocrites. Uh, I would, my general statement about this is there's nothing to say about Roy Cohn as a gay man in the 40s and 50s, all the way down to his death. Uh, there is something to say about Roy Cohn as a gay man who was a hypocrite. Uh, there's, in context, if you wanted to be a lawyer, uh, you were not out in the 40s and 50s or 60s or probably 70s to some extent or even 80s maybe. Uh, very difficult for people. Um, and it's very easy to forget in a post-Prop 8 Supreme Court sanctioning gay marriage world that uh, this was, uh, there was no out for a lot of people. Um, there were courageous people who were out but it was not really an option if you wanted to function at many levels of society. And uh, I don't assail him for that. I do assail him for, in the 1950s, being an architect of the Lavender Scare and destroying people's lives for uh, being gay. And he uh, is a world-class hypocrite for that and deserves to be excoriated. And then later in life, when he um, is dying of AIDS and the Reagans, who have the most abysmal record on the HIV AIDS crisis, give him special treatment and get him into the NIH. Hypocrites in Dante's hell are in the eighth circle. I would put all of those people in the 12th or a circle that Dante didn't contemplate. Uh, I'll take one more question. Wait, there's so many hands, don't do this to me. Uh, on the left, yes, farthest this way, you, yeah. What did immersing in his psyche, was it affecting me? Is that the question? Oh, I don't have my crystal ball. Um, I think that he will throw everyone under the bus. I think he will throw Giuliani and Barr and Pence under the bus, and he will be there like the madness of King George alone, and then Nancy Pelosi will be president. Uh, <laughs> thanks for coming. Bye. I'd love to take your questions. Uh, I will repeat the question because there's only one mic. And uh, if you're in the back, the light on me is quite blinding, so wave madly, and I will see you and call on you in that way. Um, and uh, I'll start here, yes. Uh, I don't know whether he will. I asked him to participate three times, and uh, we never heard back. So he got a chance to talk. I thought he actually might want to because Roger Stone clearly was so bullion talking about Roy Cohn, who was a hero to him. And uh, I think if Trump had not been uh, president, he probably would have wanted to participate because uh, he, really Cohn formed him, and um, for better or worse. Uh, yes. 
Okay. Do, did everyone hear that? More or less. Okay. So, uh, Carol, uh, I will out her. Carol Horn. Uh, I interviewed her, uh, but not on camera. I found her. She is around. She was a clothing designer, very nice woman, it seems to me. And she and Barbara Walters sort of, sort of took turns being the beards in the, in the 60s and 70s. And she did agree to meet with me. And uh, she couldn't quite explain the relationship, but it was rather poignant. She uh, said to me a few times, I'm just not sure why I spent so much of my time doing that with him, meaning going around and pretending to be the girlfriend. It, it didn't really amount to much that was productive for me. Um, so it was sort of a sad story in, in that case. But yes, Carol Horn. Uh, someone else? So the question is about Roger Stone. How did we approach him, and what was it like working with him, um, and the legal issues that confront him? This was early on in um, the first year of the Trump term, and Stone really wasn't under the pressure that he, he, uh, under the pressure then that he's under now. Uh, he's under a gag order now, as you probably know, and he probably couldn't participate, although he breaks the gag order routinely, so who knows. I am not a fan of his, uh, and he agreed to participate, and that morning I remember waking up on the wrong side of the bed thinking, why am I doing this? He's a liar, he's a grandstander, and this is going to be awful, and he's going to be a terrible person, and I won't want to be with him. I, he entered, he was all charm. Uh, couldn't have been nicer, exceptionally nice to the crew. He brought copies of his latest book and signed it to every member of the crew. I've interviewed many people, no one's ever done that. And he gave what I would consider to be a great performance, and I use the word performance purposefully because I think he's a very capable performer uh, to get his point across because like Cohn and like Trump himself, uh, these are media manipulators. They know how to do it. They know how to get their way. And uh, what Cohen taught uh, Stone was how to manipulate the press and uh, grandstand and try to affect opinion. And uh, he did a good job of that here. Uh, he, I think, liked talking about Cohn for the reasons that I alluded to. I think Trump would have liked it. I think he really did admire him, which I, is obviously a position I don't agree with. But um, I'm glad we did it, and I'm glad he's on the record. Someone in the back. Sure. They would be thrilled. I will. I will transmit that to them. They would be thrilled to hear it. Uh, so there are three cousins in the film. Uh, it was as if they were waiting by the phone for 40 years for it to ring and someone say, will you denounce Roy Cohen on camera? Uh, they were so happy to do it. Dave Marcus, who's one of the three, said that his father, who was a contemporary of Roy Cohn's, wouldn't be in the same room with him. Uh, the family was appalled. Uh, and uh, there was a lot of speculation in the family is how did this person happen? And you hear Anne Royfe, the writer, who's the cousin with the incredible, like the wonderful gray hair, and she's so well-spoken. Uh, she speculates that it had to do with the mother, Dora, whom she refers to as the ugliest woman in the Bronx, which was family lore, and which is why I put it in there. I mean, it's, it's a harsh thing to say, uh, and probably technically not true, but uh, because it was from a family member, I thought it was fair game. And there was a theory that 
Anne Royfe spins that's not really completely in the film, which is because it was a loveless marriage between the difficult Dora and the young, poor Alcone, and Roy was the product, he was an evil seed born of a loveless marriage, and then on and on and on. So the family itself is puzzled, and uh, he did a lot of terrible things to his own family, and they have never forgiven him. And it's a it's very sad, it's a very tragic story in many ways. Yes. That's a, I know the answer to that. Uh, it's an interesting question. So why did it take so long for the New York Bar to go after him? So the Bar has a disciplinary committee, and I think this is part of the key to the unraveling of Cohn, which was personal in terms of his health, and coincidental with that was the Bar Association going after him. He's disbarred uh, weeks before he dies, actually. Uh, New York, uh, from the 70s into the early 80s was in a very bad state. Uh, the city was on the verge of bankruptcy, and a lot of the institutions had been so corrupted in the decades before that when the mafia was really at its height, and someone like Roy Cohn was in that incredibly powerful position between the underworld of New York and the overworld of New York as sort of the mob world, gangland world, and the political world. And Cohn was the pope of these two worlds and it sits on the bridge between them and this was his source of power. But at that time, corner cutting was routine. Uh, the laws were not abided by, policemen were paid off, judges were paid off, and Cohn was the master of doing that. I think after Watergate and when the economic recovery in New York happened, the institutions were healthier and watchdogs uh, were more present and Cohn met his demise because Marty London, uh, was elected chair of the disciplinary committee of the bar. He's in the film. Curiously, he was also Spiro Agnew's defense attorney. So he's a really interesting career of going after scoundrels and defending scoundrels. And he found those files. There were no computers, even though it was the 80s. There was all typewriters. And he got computers, and they computerized the files, and they found the Roy Cohn files. And Robert Morgenthau, who just died at, I think, 102, I tried to interview him, and he was just not up for it, uh, had, had blown three indictments of Cohn, and he was thought to be invincible, but they got him. And uh, the seeds were planted many years before with these complaints that just were never um, carried out. It's a very interesting story, but I think it has to do with uh, the way New York was changing underneath Cohn's feet, and I don't think Cohn realized that it was changing underneath his feet, and that's part of it, yes. At what point did he abandon his ambitions to be governor of New York? So to amplify uh, the relative uh, in the film, Gary Cohn, a cousin, for some reason, he was a much younger man than Roy Cohn, so he was over at the family house. He's the one who asks the four questions at Passover and incites the remarkable line from Dora because the maid's dead in the kitchen. Uh, but Gary said he was in Cohn's room, and Cohn was an older young man. He would have been you know, 12 or 13, Gary, at the time. And he said he, f he was in there, and the mother, and he uncovered this list and was like, I'm going to be a prosecutor. And, then he would be governor of New York according to his projection of what his life would be when he was 17 or 18. Um, looking at Cohn's life in context, he was gay, he was born in 27, so 37, 47. He comes of age in the 40s, in the 50s. There's no career for an out gay person, uh, really. 
at that time. So he really had to be in the closet. And this is not a, uh, I'm not casting an aspersion on him for that. It was really a hard time. We, it's very easy to forget that in a world where gay marriage is possible, but those professions were not open to gay people. So he really had to trim his sails, I think. And then when J. Edgar Hoover uh, took him up as a um, protege and started to put him in um, fast-track positions in the Justice Department, I think he still would have had his eye on something like that. But after McCarthy and after the insinuations of his sexuality during the Army McCarthy hearings, I think he really realized he could not have a, a career in politics, so he went this other direction, which was consigliere to the mafia and fixer in New York power society, really, which is where media, money, and society all collide, and he really had an iron grip over that world, and that's where he made his life. So uh, practical politics and elective politics just weren't a possibility for him. Yes, if I'm missing someone up there, just wave or yell, yeah. Did I try to interview Barbara Walters? I did, uh, three times. And she's not been in public for two years. She's unwell, apparently, and uh, didn't want to make any appearances. I don't think she's given any interviews. Uh, but I would have loved to have known and asked her, WTF was going on. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think if you read her memoir, she says that Cohen had fixed a legal predicament for her father, Lou Walters, who owned a nightclub called the Latin Quarter, which had a suspicious fire and Cohen helped. Uh, but they had known each other since they were young, and uh, they used each other. And the use, the transactionality of New York society and the power structure at the time is really part of the point of the film. You see when he's totally discredited at the end of his life, and uh, all of his, or not all, but many of his misdeeds had come to light, and many people knew them even. But New York society had looked the other way because he was an intimidating figure. He knew how to blackmail people. He had very powerful press relationships, and he was the gatekeeper to money and the mafia. So uh, the film, in part, is an indictment of that world that allowed him to thrive, and many people have drawn parallels even in the press to the current Jeffrey Epstein affair where there's another example of uh, people looking the other way and you have to ask the question how culpable are the people who are in positions to blow the whistle uh, who do look the other way. Uh, yes, I see you. How did I pick this topic? It kind of chose me in a funny way. I was making another film in 2016 that came out called Studio 54, and Roy Cohn's the lawyer for Studio 54, so when you're directing a documentary like that, you're marinating in this footage in the uh, edit room, and Cohn was present in a lot of this footage, and I'm thinking to myself, this is an incredible character for a documentary. No one's done it before, and it's so darkly fascinating, but then, I thought, well, Hillary Clinton will be elected president, and the real hook for something like this is the Trump relationship with Cohn and unpacking that because I thought it would be very important for people to know. Well, in early November of 2016, obviously, things went the other way, and I wrote the treatment for the documentary the day after Trump won the Electoral College, and I really felt that this was the origin story of not only Trump, 
but also who I think is a symptom of a larger systemic problem in our society that allows this type of evil to thrive, and we need to know what this kind of self-interested, self-motivated uh, power is that really can harm us, and especially when someone achieves very high electoral office, as we're all living through right now, it's a toxic thing, and Roy Cohn, I believe, is one of the modern root causes. He goes from being a bold footnote to history before the Trump election to being a modern Machiavelli and invents a president from beyond the grave, which is a good story, if uh, not a pleasant one. Yeah, way in the back. Thank you for waving. I'll, yeah, charm. Yeah. So what's the secret of his charm? Is so his cousin says he was ugly and very charismatic at the same time. Um, I. It's hard to get through film like this, uh, or even his uh, his banter. You can see there's a certain wit to him, and he's not stupid. Okay. So everyone admits that he's a brilliant person who uses his brilliance in very misdirected ways. Uh, Jason Epstein, who's in the film and is a, one of the literary icons of our time, he was the editor-in-chief of Random House and a founder of the New York Review of Books, kept saying to me throughout the interview, you really would have liked him. I wish you'd known him, you would have liked him. And I kept on saying, how can you say that? This is the person that brought an innocent woman to the electric chair, was a gay man who was uh, wrecking the lives of homosexual men in the government in the 50s, McCarthy's chief aide, the mafia constantly, and he was like, no, 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 but you don't understand, he had a certain je ne sais quoi. Uh, so I think, you know, I interviewed, the first assignment I had as a writer for Vanity Fair magazine was to interview someone named Donald Trump, who owned Mar-a-Lago in the 90s, and he was too poor to do anything with it at the time. And I went down there to write about him, and he was totally charming. Because narcissists uh, and people with borderline personality and uh, know how to do it. They, it's part of it, part of the syndrome. They can turn it on. And I think he was very gossipy, and it works in that world of New York if you've ever been in it. People have asked me, how could he be destroyed by the Army McCarthy hearings and take the train to New York and reinvent himself as a darling of New York society? And my answer to that is, have you met New York society? I mean, it's an utterly soulless transactional place. Uh, yeah. Yes. Much. Uh, I mean, in terms of being a spreader of the virus, I, I really don't know. I, you know, uh, the questions about that culture of s gay man and sort of like this international party circuit at the time, and there were people who were unwell, and there was there was this a very dark story. Uh, he definitely, uh, at the end of his life, uh, was still having a lot of sex partners and there was a lot of kind of trafficking going on. I even uncovered a uh, prostitution triangle. There was a sex ring, there was a triangle between New York, Washington, and Galveston, Texas, which makes little sense. Uh, and then I did some more research and there was a character in Texas named Shern Moody who was one of Cohen's big associates who was a closeted gay guy and had a really bad reputation. So I think there was a lot of sex trafficking going on as well, and a lot of nefarious things, which again reminds us of the Epstein story, which is again, I think, I obviously had 
not Jeffrey Epstein in mind at all when I was making this film, nor Harvey Weinstein, actually, and all these things have come to light in that period when I was making it. But we really need to, I think, keep telling these stories to remind ourselves, remind ourselves of the corruption of society and how things can go very off the rails if we don't um, really tell ourselves the truth and take a hard look at, at who we are and what we allow as a society. Yeah, way in the back. Yeah. What happened to David Shine? Shine lived, uh, when became a businessman, he died in an airplane crash, uh, and his fam part of his family was killed as well. I didn't seem to be suspicious circumstances. If it had happened in the 50s, I would have thought, or someone I'm sure would have thought way before me that it had been suspicious, but uh, apparently it was just one of those things. Another in the back? Yeah, uh, you're right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, it was a travesty. Um, and yeah, the Rosenberg case is endlessly fascinating, and the Sam Roberts book about Green Glass is extraordinary. Uh, it's a 90-minute movie. If I'd had a four-hour miniseries, I certainly would have done an hour on the Rosenbergs. And uh, the details of that, if you go granular on it, are really incredible. And the dirty pool that the uh, prosecution team, which you're right, was purposely all Jewish, uh, and Cohen was probably the dirtiest among them, uh, perpetrated was very shameful. And it's very interesting that Trump uh, this week is talking about executing spies uh, and shooting from the hip that way. And it really seems like he's doing another kind of callback to this you know, ignominious moment of his uh, mentor. Um, final question. Uh, is it, are you the first, this is your first question? Yeah. Uh, was there anything that was in the cutting room floor that I loved? Uh, well, when you're making these films, the first cut is usually about three and a half to four hours. So you can imagine what all the things that go in there that you want. Um, it's, I also finished the film more than a year ago. It premiered at Sundance. So what's on the cutting room floor, in order to kind of get over the pain of losing all those things, you sort of soon forget. Uh, one thing I'll say about uh, what we put in that I'm proud of and I wish I had more of was this film footage from inside the Roy Cohn world. That's uh, camera master footage from 60 Minutes which did two profiles of and that's never been seen before. So we got it from CBS News and processed it and restored it and that stuff with his menagerie of frog plushies and all those intimate details, the little Disney sign on the bedroom door where Mickey's pointing to Roy's room, that kind of uh, textural thing uh, just was lost in the archive of CBS. I would have loved to have had as much of that as possible. We had hours and hours and hours of it. And as a final note um, about what you've just seen, uh, he had, Cohn, a, a extensive archive of photographs that were lost. And they turned up at an auction a couple years back. And someone bought them anonymously, someone I knew. And he gave them to me. And this is the first time anyone's seen them. And a lot of them are Roy Cohn with a lot of shirtless guys cavorting on yachts. I can promise you that Roy Cohn would not have wanted you to have seen those photos. So it was a great pleasure to show them to you tonight. Uh, I thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Landmark Theater's Q&A podcast. 
If you want to hear more conversations with filmmakers about the latest independent, foreign, and documentary films opening at Landmark Theaters, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app or visit our podcast website at landmarktheaters.podbean.com. You can also check out our YouTube channel for videos of Q&As and other exclusive content. See you next time.